Hello, everyone. First of all, I'd love to thank you for tuning in to the Integrative Thoughts podcast. I am your host, Matt Kaufman. And through this platform, I plan on seeking out guests that interest me, that I am curious about, and overall just living a more meaningful, purposeful life in hopes that you as listeners and I myself can grasp onto a little bit of their knowledge and integrate that into our daily lives. Are you having trouble losing weight? Do you get extreme food cravings, especially at night? What about the inability to lose weight even when you cut calories and do a lot of exercise? I know I fell into this category for pretty much most of my life. It's actually probably not even your fault. You most likely have what's called leptin resistance. Leptin is actually a hormone made by the fat cells that regulates food intake and energy expenditure by communicating with the brain. The more fat you have, the more negative leptin messages are actually being sent to your brain. This creates what's called leptin resistance and is going to sabotage all dieting efforts and causes food cravings even when you have enough fat stored. Introducing Zenith, this is an all-new, completely natural formula that gently decreases leptin levels to restore accurate communication between fat cells in the brain. Zenith contains zero harmful stimulants. It's made of all-natural polysaccharides and acetylated fatty acids, very safe for long-term weight loss plans, and it is made in the USA. In an eight-week, university-conducted, double-blind, placebo-controlled study, participants lost 21.3 pounds of fat, lost almost four inches off their waistline, and reduced serum leptin levels by 43%. So if you or someone you know, someone you really love is struggling with weight loss, head down to the show notes. I'll have a link there and a few videos where you can learn more information about Zenith. So listen, I've been experimenting with different types of minerals, especially magnesium, for the past five to six years. But I could never really find a product that I could feel the benefits that magnesium claimed to give. Magnesium is one of the most important minerals for all of human health. It participates in over 600 different biochemical reactions in the body, yet over 80% of the population is deficient. Magnesium deficiency can increase risk for all disease and greatly decrease optimal performance. That's why I like Bioptimizers. They use all seven forms of magnesium in a highly bioavailable form in their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium helps with stress, anxiety, sleep, immune function, detoxification, and so much more. If you want to try out this product, head over to Buy Optimizers and use code INTEGRATIVETHOUGHTS10 to receive a 10% discount on their amazing product, Mag Breakthrough. Today's guest is Dr. Christy Sutton. She is a chiropractor and a genetics expert. She does teach classes on labrogenomics. She likes to incorporate genetic testing, some lab testing, also some precision-based nutrition and environmental interventions as well. But I wanted to have her on the show to talk about her new book that hasn't been released yet called The Iron Curse. And I wanted to do that because I have one of these hemochromatosis genes, which is your body's ability to accumulate more iron. And I wanted to see how she measures this, her thought process around it, and what she recommends supplement-wise, blood donations, all the things that will affect me. So a little bit of a selfish episode, but I do think that undiagnosed high iron is a hidden epidemic and is at the root cause of a lot of illness. So sit back and relax and enjoy this show all about iron. Dr. Christy Sutton, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, reaching out. I actually uh, started diving into your work and I'm super interested into this um, 
whole kind of space that you're getting into here with some of your webinars and books. And so I actually wanted to start at a point where I read on your website that it says your personal and family history has been riddled with serious and deadly diseases that are largely hereditary in nature. Can you kind of paint us a picture of what that looks like and what you mean by that? Yeah, so um, my personal history is I have Crohn's and celiac disease. Um, and, you know, those two things, in my opinion, very much kind of go together. Not everybody with celiac disease develops Crohn's disease, but I've never seen a Crohn's patient without a celiac gene. So, I mean, I Crohn's, Crohn's disease and celiac are both autoimmune diseases that can certainly be deadly. Um, people think of probably Crohn's is more deadly than celiac, but I think undiagnosed celiac is really quite deadly as well. Once somebody is diagnosed with celiac, you know, the treatment, of course, is get off gluten, which doesn't seem as big of a deal, but celiac triggers a lot of autoimmune diseases. And I think for me, it was a big part of me developing Crohn's disease, which, um, you know, it does, there are some people in my family that do have Crohn's. Um, and then my mother, who I got the celiac gene from, she um, she technically died from diabetes, but what actually killed her was um, she was a paranoid schizophrenic that stopped taking her medication, her insulin. And so she died like right after I graduated from um, chiropractic school. So I didn't know, I, I kind of, was learning more, but I didn't really know what I know now. Now, I, I believe that her diabetes was actually a type one diabetes rather than just a type two because she was taking insulin and she wasn't like obese or anything. Um, and a lot of people do get misdiagnosed as having type two when they actually have type one. Um, and celiac disease, the celiac gene does cause type 1 diabetes and many people because those are both autoimmune but then what a lot of people don't realize is that um you know schizophrenia which is a horrible disease that many people die from um that can also be caused by celiac disease and um so but it's it's different than like a digestive type presentation but a large number of people that have celiac disease that affects their brain, not their gut. And I believe my mother was one of those people. So, um, and then, you know, her father um, died of cancer in his 70s, but he's the one who had the celiac gene. So, it, you know, through me kind of doing the, learning about the genetic testing and doing genetic testing, I've kind of been able to like, trace back what I think is probably a big part of the underlying cause of the health problems that really run in my family. Those are the most significant, of course. Um, and then there's other, you know, every family has their issues, but um, certainly I personally think that having that celiac gene has created, you know, three generations of health problems that are completely different, but related. Um, so that's, that's what I mean by that. My, my husband, on the other hand, those are the people I'm related to, uh, my husband, on the other hand, he, uh, 
he was diagnosed with uh, hereditary hemochromatosis a little, well, actually when I married him, he was undiagnosed. And then through everything that, you know, I did with him, we got him diagnosed. Um, so he was diagnosed with hereditary hemochromatosis, which is high iron, which is thought to be rare, but actually is not. And then not too long after we diagnosed him with hereditary hemochromatosis, he was diagnosed with Cushing's disease, which is um, where your cortisol levels get too high. And he developed Cushing's because he has a pituitary tumor that causes him to secrete too much of this hormone called ACTH. And if you make a lot of that ACTH, then you're going to make too much cortisol. And then too much cortisol is just really bad for your whole body. So, you know, that's definitely a rare disease. And, you know, we can talk more about that if you want. But um, so, yeah, there's certainly, um, I think, some rare type of diseases that I'm personally affected by through my genes, but then also my husband and, you know, hopefully my daughter will not. She does have the celiac gene and she already has gluten sensitivity. She also has the hereditary hemochromatosis gene from my husband. And um, she, at the age of nine, just recently, we discovered she had a slightly high ferritin, which they only ran that test because I asked them to. And then they never even told me it was high. I had to log into the portal um, to see it was high, which is um, pretty common for doctors to kind of ignore or dismiss or just not run the tests for iron. So anyways, we're getting that ferritin back down so that she doesn't develop hereditary hemochromatosis like my um, husband. But so it, one important thing that I didn't say is I think that the hereditary hemochromatosis that my husband has was actually largely driven by the hereditary hemochromatosis because high iron destroys a lot of the body, including the anterior pituitary gland, which is where my husband's tumor is. So that's a lot that I just kind of threw at you, but that's the gist. <laughs> no, that's, your that's great. That's what I, exactly what I wanted from you. I want, it sounded like you have been kind of unraveling quite a bit and digging deep on not just your health, your family's health, kind of looking back into the ancestry and just trying to really piece together the puzzle pieces on how all this stuff really works and how everything's happening. And before we get into genetics themselves, I kind of want to ask you um, just specifically about your health journey. How did you overcome your Crohn's and heal from that? Well, you know, so Crohn's is an autoimmune disease that affects your digestive tract. And um, it's like, like all autoimmune diseases, you're, you know, where you are is a day-to-day -day battle, right? So you're never truly cured. It's like I, there are triggers for my Crohn's, which I have to avoid and will have to avoid for the rest of my life if I want to be healthy. And for me personally, foods tend to be my biggest trigger, which is not surprising, you know, given that it's a digestive disease. I have the celiac disease gene, those type. I have celiac disease, those things. Um, so I have to be really careful about my diet and I will have to for the rest of my life. Um, my situation's a little bit more complicated because when I was 16 and they diagnosed me, they diagnosed me by removing the last foot of my small intestine, which is um, the, ili the ileum. And so that's like right before the large intestine. And so because of that, um, 
I have to really manage myself very carefully. And what that looks like is I have to be careful about B12 because that's where B12 is absorbed. But I also, that's where bile is absorbed in the small intestine is the last foot. So if I, I don't absorb bile because I don't have that last foot of my small intestine, which means that the bile goes to the colon and acts like a laxative which then I ended up with like, you know, diarrhea, it's called bile diarrhea. And that's not, it, that's not like Crohn's diarrhea. That's just because, you know, this bile gets into my colon and acts like a laxative. Um, so in order to prevent that, I have to take a bile sequestrant. I just, I have to, you know, I have been kind of doomed to have to do this because they took out the last foot of my small intestine and because I have to take that bile sequestrant, I have to manage all sorts of other side effects from, you know, it's not just the Crohn's I have to manage, it's managing not having the last foot of my small intestine, taking the bile sequestrant, which I know has side effects, you know, I have to manage those as far as fat soluble vitamins, absorbing fats, it's constantly managing. And then, um, and no doctor's doing this for me because frankly, what I've discovered is they're pretty clueless, so, you know, I tell people when they ask me, you know, how do you know so much? I'm like, I'm trying to self-preservation for me and my family is really a large driving factor. I'm trying to just stay alive with a really complicated body and genes and family. Um, and then of course I have my patients and I love them and I learn for them too. But a lot of the reason that I know so much is self-preservation. So another thing about me not having the last foot of my small intestine is my gut microbiome easily gets messed up because um, the ileocecal valve is not there like it should. And the ileocecal valve is what stops the bacteria from the colon from traveling up into the small intestine. And so then that's where like, I'm at a very high risk for like SIBO, small intestinal bowel overgrowth. So I have to be very careful about making sure I'm not eating a lot of sugar. If I eat a lot of sugar, you know, it'll catch up with me sooner or later. Um, and just making sure that, you know, I, take lots of good probiotics and I just have to be very careful. There's, there are so many things that I'm constantly managing, um, with supplements and diet and it's, it's kind of exhausting, but the alternative is that, you know, I just live in a world of ill health, which is also horrible. So I would much rather just, you know, manage them with all the little things I have to do that work. Um, but it's a, it's a daily battle and, um, so it's not like I'm healed from it. I'm just um, all things considered in a pretty good place. I'm not taking any medications for Crohn's and, um, you know, I certainly don't want to have to, but it's a very complicated disease and, you know, you really have to be on top of it. Yeah, and you don't uh, actually know my story, but I um, I was just diagnosed with Lyme disease about a year and a half ago after like a multi-year trying to figure it out, talking to Ben, asking what he thought, getting diagnosed with adrenal fatigue and this and that, and come to find out I had some heavy metals and Lyme and every co-infection possible. So I, I'm in the same boat as far as uh, experimentation and testing and trying to figure out what works for me. And a lot of it still consumes me quite day to day. And I'm pretty close to uh, full remission, though. I have a little bit of brain fog here and there if I kind of push it too hard with the detox stuff or, you know, I do some PEMF. Like if I push it a little too hard, I can get a little fatigue or a little brain fog. But for the most part, I'm 
pretty functional. And that was just a year and a half ago. So, you know, I go to the gym, I do yoga, you know, so I think, yeah, if you do get to the bottom of it and kind of figure out what exactly it is you need and do a lot of experimentation and playing around with different supplements, you can kind of live a pretty functional life and be pretty solid. At least that's been my experience, but it, it is, you know, you know, if I have some gluten or, you know, I still don't digest dairy very well, it's getting better, but I, you know, sometimes I go out to a restaurant and I have some cheese and I have whatever and I don't really feel that awful, but a lot of gas and bloating and kind of, you know, I'll, I'll be like kind of clearing my throat a little bit. So, you know, I still have some issues lingering from that and working on my gut and everything. But that's definitely um, I'm in the same boat. People ask me how, my, how I know so much. I mean, I was just super, super ill for five years and felt like I was dying. So all I did was research and try different supplements and coffee enemas and see doctors. And from there, I just kind of building upon my knowledge and just kept going from there. And then after a while, you just have all of this uh, internal knowledge built up about all these different protocols and different things and talk to different doctors. And it just seems like, you know, so much, but it came from out of, out of desperation, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is really, you know, I think why the alternative healthcare world is really thriving and has, in my opinion, you know, a really bright future is because the, like the, in my opinion, the modern medical system is lacking a lot of the tools to really help people like remove the problem and heal up. You know, they're somewhat limited in the tools they have, which are largely surgery and prescriptions. And neither of those, while well, surgery can certainly remove a problem, like if you have, you know, a tumor that's, you got to remove the problem, but um, the you know the fact that the natural health world is really working and getting the root of things and removing the problem and then healing up because like modern medical doctors don't have a lot of great tools for like healing up. Like you know, there are certain things I have to take for my gut or else I'm going to have problems. And there's no prescription, you know, largely because those everything that's in there is not pat. You can't patent those things. So, you know, pharmaceutical companies are not interested in them. And if they did ever create something like that, they would somehow ruin it with some preservative or binder or something, because that's just what they do. In my opinion, is they take the good idea and often ruin it just because they kind of lack the real foundational understanding. So that's a little bit of a tangent, but yeah, your story is so common. And so many times the people that, you know, are really educated about the alternative world and, you know, self-health and all the different things, it's because they had to, you know, and like my, my father is a medical doctor and he was, he's also a pharmacist. My mother was a pharmacist. They met in pharmacy school, you know. I grew up in a very allopathic, like traditional medical world. And I grew up being told chiropractors are dangerous and quacks. And I even remember at one point in time, my dad saying, you know, vitamins were dangerous, you know. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that was a miseducation that he got from his medical school um, education. And then here I am now, a chiropractor that, you know, has learned a ton about nutritional supplements and I, I can't personally live without them. I mean, I, the, I, the ironic thing is I 
almost died of pellagra when I was, that's another kind of weird disease that I had. Um, when I was in my 20s, I was really low in vitamin B3, which is pellagra. And that is actually somewhat common for people with Crohn's. I, and the, I actually got down to 70 some odd pounds in my 20s. Wow. Um, and yeah, it was very, ama- I was very emaciated. It was a chiropractor that diagnosed me and really helped pull me out. And, you know, that's how I'm a chiropractor now. But like, I didn't go into this world think like I almost didn't even go to that appointment when I realized this doctor was a chiropractor. I was just going to this doctor that somebody referred me to because I was so sick. When I realized they were a chiropractor, I almost didn't go. I didn't want to be rude. So I went, thank God I did because, you know, he helped me so much and helped change my life. And now I'm a chiropractor because of him. But, you know, it's not like I wanted to go into the alternative healthcare world. Um, just most people don't realize how ill-equipped the normal medical, par- you know, allopathic medical system is until they have a problem um, that it can't solve, which is increasingly a large number of problems. So, yeah, I totally agree, and um, I feel as if the shift is coming because of you know it's crazy how much. Uh, of a beating the human body can take. I feel like we've been getting poisoned for about a hundred years straight. And then this type of generation, you know, yours, mine, and the ones coming after are starting to finally feel the effects, which there's just multitude of different reasons, you know, mother passing down toxicity, just more and more chemicals in the environment, heavy metals are ubiquitous in the environment. And it just starts to compile over generations. And then now So many people are waking up because the doctors just give them this anxiety medication or this pill and this antibiotic. And it it never seems to work because they really don't that much. It's the it's just uh, just, sad, but also, yeah, they really are. And, and, And but I think a lot of people are waking up because they can only be on the medications for so long before they start to seek someone like, you know, an alternative practitioner, whether it's chiropractor or functional health practitioner or just anything in that matter, health coach, who's the FDN or something, anything that'll kind of get them back in balance. And uh, moving forward, I know you speak a lot about genetics in your first book. How do we cut through the noise with there being so many different ge- uh, genetic snips to look at? Like I just had Dr. Joel Rosen read mine for me because it's it's so overwhelming almost. And I just didn't have the time to dive into it. So how do people cut through the noise and really figure out which genetics actually matter to them? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So um, that's largely why I am launching and have started the Labrogenomics webinar courses is for that very reason. Because, you know, years ago when I wrote my first genetic testing book and I created the genetic detoxification report that goes along with that, you know, that was really like a more expansive, I was just kind of looking at a large number of different genes. And I, that's why I wrote about so many and included so many in my report. And then I continued to use that report with patients since, you know, since I wrote that book, which I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, I honestly don't remember when I published it, but it was a while back. And I, I started to kind of see, okay, these are really important. I'm not even going to kind of look at these other ones as much because there's just, 
it, it, it you can easily get bogged down by kind of the minutia of the ones that don't are not really as important. Um, and so in kind of my opinion is we need to learn a whole lot about very few genes rather than learning only a little bit about a lot of different genes. And let's just start there rather than, you know, and I'm not saying like, I think we're going to add on more, but let's add on like the really important ones rather than just there's a little bit of research here and a little bit of research here and there's not a lot you can do about it or something like that. So that's really where the Labrogenomics educational platform came from is trying to just really focus on what are the most important genes. Let's learn as much as we can about them and what, what they mean, what you can do about them and, you know, labs you can run and, you know, actionable therapies. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a common problem for people just to, I think, look at way too many things. And I definitely created a report with, I think, way too many genes. But having said that, and I wrote about way too many genes in my first book, having said that, um, there might be other people that are finding valuable tools, you know, with the genes I'm not really looking at. And it's certainly one of those things where if you're not looking at it, sometimes it's hard to really know what is or is not important. And um, so it's easy, I think, for people to get overwhelmed because people look at it too many. When, when I'm talking to somebody, I really try to focus just on a couple. These are actionable things. Let's, let's get the lowest hanging fruit that's going to, you know, fix as many problems as possible and not worry about discussing all the different genes. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like the Dr. Ben Lynch approach. It seems like, uh, I know he kind of limits it down to like five or six different, what he calls dirty genes. Is that kind of what your lab or genomics is, uh, similar to that? Um, so I guess kind of similar, just, um, I would even say many of the genes that he focuses on are not as important as the ones that I'm talking about. Cause like, he doesn't really go into like the hemochromatosis gene or like the Alzheimer's gene. He's really like into methylation and, and that's cool. You know, he's, he's done a lot of good work with that. Um, and I know he's also really into histamine and I know there's a lot of things that he's really focused on and not saying those are not important. And I do talk about those and we'll talk about those in the lab or genomic webinars, but there are some, that I think are really important that have not been included in that, you know, his work. Interesting. So what are some of the most important genetic uh, SNPs that you do cover in the lab genomics and are, what are you doing for people? Are you giving them certain supplements? Are you giving them specific diets based on them genes? What does it look like? Yeah. So, um, well, right now I have, three labrogenomics courses and I'm going, it's just kind of going to continue to, uh, I'm going to continue to add more labrogenomic courses over the course of the year. Um, but I started out with the iron curse, which is the webinar based on my upcoming book. And that is largely about hemochromatosis, iron overload, which is too much iron, but, 
Um, and that the, the genes that I focus on primarily in that, in that seminar is, are the hemochromatosis genes. Although I do talk about some other genes that are important, you know, as far as what I call genetic combinations. And what I mean by that is like, if you have a hemochromatosis gene, that's going to increase your risk for high iron. And if it high iron increases your risk for Alzheimer's, well, if you have an Alzheimer's gene in combination, then that's a really serious genetic combination. And so I have, you know, a whole, one of the modules is based on genetic combinations that, you know, I think are the most important to go through as far as if you have this gene, let's look at these other important genes, um, including Alzheimer's, age-related macular degeneration, what I call the hangover gene, which is an alcohol detoxification gene that if you have it, you tend to have kind of like an Asian red flush whenever you drink alcohol. And that's largely because you're not detoxifying the, the alcohol as well. And so those people tend to have more liver issues, which is a serious problem if you have the hemochromatosis gene, because hemochromatosis is going to increase your risk for liver disease also. Um, I even include the celiac gene as like a genetic combination because um, people with hemochromatosis tend to have more leaky gut autoimmune diseases, um, gut issues. And if you add that celiac gene to it, you're just more likely to have more gut related issues if you have high iron, you know, and the celiac gene. Now, where that gets kind of confusing for a lot of people is if you have celiac disease, you're not going to be absorbing iron as well. So a lot of times people don't develop necessarily like hemochromatosis high iron because they have that gene, but they are more likely to have just generally gut problems and autoimmune diseases, if that makes sense. So those are just a handful that I talk about in the iron curse. And then I basically am going to have individual webinars for just the Alzheimer's gene and like the celiac Crohn's genes. And I did one on MTHFR and methylation. Um, so that's the, there's just, um, there's a lot of information there. Um, but certainly there are specific genes that everybody needs to know they have, and it's not that large of a number really. Um, so my goal, my plan is, you know, now that I've done the Iron Curse webinar and then I have the MTHFR and methylation webinar done, um, which that is a genetic combination to MTHFR and hemochromatosis gene because hemochromatosis increases your risk for cardiovascular disease and MTHFR increases your risk for cardiovascular disease, dementia, hemochromatosis increases your risk for cardiovascular dementia. And um, hemochromatosis increases your risk for high homocysteine, which MTHFR does too. So if you have those two together, it's a really bad genetic combination. So not only do you need to learn, you know, the iron curse information, but you really need to learn the MTHFR methylation information because, you know, that's a whole nother hour of material. So, um, but in the future, I'm going to be coming out with the Alzheimer's one, cardiovascular, detoxification um age-related macular degeneration there's there's a lot i have a whole plan it's just a matter of kind of pumping out the material because it takes time it's just it's really 
I, I have to say I'm kind of like a perfectionist when it comes to this mm -hmm. type of stuff and I want it to be really good. No, good for you. I think we need perfectionists in the world. I'm kind of more of a gunslinger. I just start putting stuff out and then I refine it as I go, which seems to work well for me, but other people like to be super polished. And what it sounds like though, is uh, people need to learn about these genetics. And if they have one, there's a potential chance of that one kind of potentiating or um, increasing another one that could be caused uh, problems when you have both. So, you know, one is bad, not necessarily bad, but one you should look at. But then if you have one mixed with another and they kind of lead to the same thing, then you should be able to be aware of that, get your iron in control or, you know, work on methylation. And so that you're, you're kind of combining genes that if you have one or more, then you kind of look at those in combination and then do a, do a plan from there. Yeah. Yeah. Combining genes, but not just combining genes, but at, also looking at the labs that one needs to really be looking at with specific genes. So that's why that's why I called it labrogenomics, because, you know, I don't from from what my experience, just looking at genes is not very valuable in general. You really need to be able to look at kind of more the epigenetics piece, which labs certainly help with that. So that's why whenever I talk about a gene, I don't just talk about the gene and what the gene is and what it does. And it's important to know about those genes. But what's also equally, if not you know, more important, is to also look at the labs that are reflecting how that gene is being expressed in the body. So that's labrogenomics. So for example, if you have the hemochromatosis gene, then we really need to be looking at, you know, the iron related labs, because that's how you really do know if you have a problem. Because you can have a, you know, a genetic predisposition and not develop a health problem. But you're more likely to have a certain health problem with certain genes. So how do we ensure that you don't develop those health problems by doing thorough lab work is an important part. That's not the only thing. You know, there's some things that it's just more, you're going to have to change your lifestyle. Like if you, if you have the Alzheimer's gene, you know, maybe don't wait until you have all these, you know, labs showing you have a problem. <laughs> maybe, you know, you just kind of start exercising more and, you know, and, and you don't really want to wait until like you have cognitive decline just, you know, as soon as you find out you have a gene, there's things you want to do. And this is why I think, you know, genetic testing in kids is really important because um, in my opinion, you know, there's a lot of kids out there that have issues at a young age that if you start addressing them early, you can really protect them in their future. Like my daughter with the iron issue, you know, the only reason that we're checking her iron as closely as we are is because, you know, I've written and studied iron very deeply between the book and the webinar and my husband, et cetera. Um, with the Alzheimer's gene, you know, kids, parents need to know if kids have that gene because they are more likely to have concussions with head injuries and not heal up from them. So those are not kids that you should probably really encourage to go into like football and hockey and, you know, rugby and, you know, these really high concussion injury type issues. So, you know, the, 
the genes in the labs are only as powerful as the person that's kind of analyzing them and suggesting. But um, so everybody is different and you really have to look at a lot of different pieces. But if you don't have those genes in labs, it's a lot harder to kind of find the best treatment plan for somebody. Yeah, I like that. Looking at the whole picture um, and you touched a little bit about epigenetics and sounded like you look at lab work to determine some of that. How uh, what's your stance on like minerals and nutrition, how they affect like enzymatic function and gene expression? Do you think epigenetics is a that plays a bigger role than genetics? Are they equal? What's your thought process on that? Um, I think epigenetics largely mostly does play a bigger role than genetics as far as, you know, there are some exceptions to the rule. Like there are some genetic situations where it's like, that's just a really bad situation. Like with a cystic fibrosis type thing where that's a purely hereditary disease, you can still change one's health who has cystic fibrosis with certain environmental factors. But the fact is there they are going to have cystic fibrosis and, you know, that's going to be a lifelong health challenge. Most people don't deal with purely genetic situations. Most people are dealing with what are kind of like little genetic landmines that if they know about them and know how to kind of navigate and avoid them, then they can greatly prevent and improve their health. So certainly the way that you avoid those genetic, you know, the genetic landmines are what they are. You know, they're like, they're like the hand of cards you're dealt. You know, the genes are what they are. You can't change them. But the epigenetics is really kind of how you play your hand. So, you know, you can be really smart about it or and figure your way out of, you know, a bad genetic hand, or you can just kind of not be very smart about it and you know, have a lot of health problems. So I'm more in the camp of let's do something about it environmental wise. And, and there's, I don't think there's really any situation that environment doesn't affect. It's just, there are some situations where you can really make a bigger impact with environment than others simply because of the genetic situation. Yeah, that makes total sense. It sounds like the epigenetics play a bigger role. You're going to want your diet right. You're going to want to eliminate toxins, look at everything, but then also get a picture of your genetics and see where your downfalls really are. And that makes a lot of sense to me because there's always like back and forth from people who are only in the genetics, people who only believe in epigenetics. And it's like a back and forth. And I'm kind of into this where we kind of like all the data matters a little bit, right? You know, it's just kind of context and how you examine it. But I think, uh, you know, getting more data is never a bad thing. No, no, data is helpful, but also like it has to be quality data and quality analysis. So, you know, the whole garbage in, garbage out thing, you know, if you have really garbage data, you're going to be giving garbage, you know, recommendations. So you have to have good data. And then you also have to have, you know, a very thoughtful approach to how to interpret that data. And so that's important too. Yeah. Most people who contact me, friends that I've had for a long time before I was kind of in this space will 
yeah, I got my lab work done by my, you know, allopathic doctor. Everything was fine. I'm like, you don't want to use those ranges. And they're not looking at pretty much anything that a functional practitioner would look at like yourself. Well, not only are they, you know, also often they just dismiss, frankly, out of range stuff like they don't even mention it. Like, for example, my daughter and that happened with my husband, too, when he had high iron. Um, but so oftentimes patients, I will see their labs and they'll have things that are just out of range and their doctor's not saying anything about it. Or they'll have things that are, you know, in what's, you know, a, a not a healthy range, not like a functional range. Or, and this is probably actually the most common, the labs are just very minimalistic and they're not very thorough. So the, you know, the most common labs to get run are like a CBC, a CMP, lipid panel, maybe like a urinalysis. Many doctors are not running like a full iron panel or a ferritin or anything. So they're not really looking at iron. Um, a lot of times they're not running vitamin D or homocysteine or, you know, and those are just a couple of the many, many different really easy, but important options out there. So, um, that's the whole thing, garbage in, garbage out. You know, you can say you're really healthy based on what little information we have. Um, but if it's bad information, then, you know, what you're saying could be wrong. Yeah, I totally agree that. The panels that you get at your regular doctor aren't anything like what you would get from from a functional practitioner. And they just look at so much more and then they take into account symptoms and lifestyle. And there's just so much more data that needs to be extrapolated from from a client before you just look at a very basic subset of data and determine everything looks pretty normal. Because when I had Lyme disease um, at the regular of the Western medical, you know, establishment that I went to see, they, you know, everything was fine to them. You know, then he goes, then I went and seen uh, Dr. Minkoff out in Clearwater and everything was not fine. He was like, if you weren't like into biohacking and have a sauna and doing NAD suppositories and all the things that you're already doing, he goes, you'd probably be bedridden, like literally, like you wouldn't be doing anything. You wouldn't be going to work. You wouldn't be doing anything, working out. So I was barely keeping myself alive with all of the research that I'd done and just trying to give myself some nutrients and energy. But he he's seen a lot, you know. But I mean, it was a couple thousand dollars worth of test as well. So there's there that plays a big role too. the people just use their insurance, you know, and just try to get what they can out of it. Yeah, that's a serious problem um, because, you know, doctors are that doctors that run insurance based practices, you know, they are limited and kind of what they can do because there's only so many things that insurance will pay for. And, you know, you kind of have to meet these certain criteria before they'll maybe run, you know, they can run the next test or whatever. Um, and that's that's a whole nother issue where like insurance companies shouldn't be deciding care like it should be the doctor that decides the care. But and I guess ultimately it is the doctor, but they feel like they have to kind of explain themselves to insurance companies. And I don't take insurance, so I'm not the best person to talk to about insurance. But I can tell you that um, it's certainly very common for people to kind of have this mentality. And I get it. I get it. And health insurance is expensive. You know, I think everybody needs health insurance, you know, if they break their leg or something, you know, catastrophic happens. It's expensive. Having said that, it doesn't 
pay for you to be healthy. You know, it's really disease care. You know, it, they're not going to be running the tests that you need to ensure that you're healthy and to really make you healthy. You know, the doctors don't really have, I believe, the time or sometimes maybe not even the training to really giving the, give you the information that you need to be healthy. Um, it's not until somebody's diagnosed with like a disease where, you know, the insurance really starts kicking in. Um, of course, for something like Lyme, that's a whole nother story because, you know, a lot of the doctors don't even know how to diagnose and treat Lyme. So did you have Babesia too? Yeah, I had Epstein-Barr and Babesia. Okay. And you, but, so you got, did you take antibiotics to get rid of the Borrelia and the Babesia? So in the beginning, I just took a bunch of herbs and the Babesia wasn't showing up. But then after I did like a, a whole protocol with all these ozones and hocats and PEMF and tons of herbs and supplements. Um, when I went back in, I did muscle tests for Babesia. And that was actually the only medication that he gave me was actually ivermectin. And it was interesting because it was in the height of like the pandemic and all of that. And the ivermectin was hard to get and it was super expensive, but I figured it out anyways. But yeah, I was taking like pretty high. I can't remember the exact 10 milligrams or something, but it was like uh, only three times a week. It wasn't like a daily thing, but I did get some serious kind of like herxing detox reactions from the ivermectin, but that's what he, he used for the Babesia. Did you ever take doxycycline? Nope. I never took any, uh, anything like that. He, the only medication that he gave me besides the herbs and the ozone and everything was that ivermectin and then, um, armor thyroid actually. Yeah. I was just wondering, cause a lot of people with Lyme and co-infections have to take doxycycline. So if you take CoQ10, do you feel bad? Um, hard to tell. I haven't, it's, I, I would feel so bad from so many supplements for a while. I'm kind of just now getting to where I can like take things and feel pretty normal, but I was yeah. taking so many different things from him that it was hard to really tell which ones were making me bad. Yeah. If you start taking CoQ10 and start feeling bad with it, then that could be a sign that you still have the Babesia because Babesia uh, like really needs the CoQ10 in your body to survive. And then mm. you might need to take like an antibiotic like doxycycline or something. Of course, these are things to talk to your, you know, your prescribing doctor about, but just kind of things to know about. Cool. Noted. Definitely. I'll, uh, I'll try some CoQ10 and see if I actually feel worse or better. I, I think I only take, I don't take a CoQ10 supplement currently. I don't think I'd have to look, I take a bunch of stuff might be, might be snuck in something, but I do take like a, a, a desiccated organ blend, which I think I like the heart has CoQ10 in there, right? I don't know the exact amount might not be as potent as just taking a supplement. I don't think that would be enough. I think, right. you know, the, the best test would be to take like a pretty couple hundred milligrams at least a mm -hmm. day of just CoQ10 um, and just maybe do that for a week or so and just see, do you have like a de rapid noticeable decline from that. And if so, then perhaps um, you might still have that Babesia. Yeah. So, but this is all just for educational purposes <laughs> and not diagnostic. Never, yeah. never recommendations, only for education. Makes total sense. Mm -hmm. I do want to shift gears. You've already talked a lot about iron, but um, so when I had my genetics read by Dr. Joel Rosin, he actually did, I can't remember the exact uh, gene that I had, but he, he, uh, told me to be aware of my iron and he's actually recommended that I donate blood 
uh, like three, four times a year and take some uh, colostrum or lactoferrin, something like that. Um, so this kind of interests me and I've been doing that ever since and feel pretty good on that. And then I dove into like Morley Robbins work and got really infatuated with that, like all of last year and listened to every podcast I could listen to with him and then read his or listened to his book a couple times. But he's kind of like in this boat that like everybody has iron overload. And I kind of like your more balanced approach after listening to you. It's kind of like you said, you're kind of from the anemic, you know, low iron world. And then not everyone has iron overload. So can we dive into that and kind of explain how people uh, that, that there are both that can exist, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, okay, I feel like you asked a lot of questions there. So I'm just <laughs> yeah. going to get started and you just kind of bring me back to where you want me to go if I'm going in the wrong direction. No problem. But um, so, like you said, I personally have struggled with iron deficient anemia. Um, and when I first graduated from chiropractic school, like I kind of, was checking a lot of people's iron levels because I thought everybody has iron deficient anemia and I'm going to catch it and everybody. And I did catch it in a lot of people, but in the process of catching that in a lot of people, I also discovered that, you know, a lot of people have high iron. Of course, I didn't know back then what I know now. So I didn't really know what to do other than just tell people to donate blood. And that was, you know, reasonably good advice, but now in hindsight, pretty pathetic. Um, so, but better than nothing, you know, it was just, I didn't know what I didn't know. So, um, now having, you know, basically diagnosed my husband with hereditary hemochromatosis, written a book on genetic testing, created a genetic port, report with the hemochromatosis genes. I'm, I believe I'm really one of the few healthcare practitioners out there that's really looking at the general population and their iron levels in labs, like full, complete iron panel, and the genes, and really understands it. And so what I discovered is that there is there is a silent epidemic of undiagnosed, untreated hemochromatosis. There are a lot of myths and mis misperceptions out there about hemochromatosis, the genes, the disease, um, there's a lot of bad information out there and I'm trying to really, you know, correct that information out there with my webinar and book, The Iron Curse. And I am familiar with, um, Morley Robbins saying, you know, and, and I, I, I am familiar with it and that I've seen some of his podcasts with Dr. Mercola where they talk about it. I don't personally know him, you know, either of them. Um, but I have seen a podcast where they were talking about how, you know, basically everybody has high iron and nobody should take iron and, you know, everybody's copper deficient anemic, you know, or low in copper. So that's kind of my summary in a nutshell, which I think is kind of what you were alluding to. Is that right? Yeah, his theory, which I mean, very, very smart guy. He spends hours and hours a day reading through medical literature every day. Very enthusiastic. I mean, I think he's on to something for sure. But he basically says, like, you know, the iron from the iron fortification system and um, all, basically how much iron we've been taking in and our ability to we can't chelate it or eliminate it that well. Um, basically like iron in the tissues can be like 10 times higher, higher than iron in the blood or the lab work. And 
he runs a full Monty panel and looks at people's like magnesium and copper along with it. He's big on those and basically says that like the copper, you need a small amount of copper to recycle the iron and this like endothelial reticular system. I can't even pronounce it that well, but basically like the iron recycling system. Um, and so copper plays a major role. So he kind of starts with like a low dose kind of copper glycinate or something like that. I think his product has some spirulina in there as well. That kind of has an effect as well and tries to get the iron recycling and also lowers the iron. But his thought process is like almost like ferritin can never be too low. And I don't know if that's harmful or not, because he's like, yeah. he wants the ferritin to be so low that it's, it sounds almost a little dangerous. <laughs> But he is Very he's spot on about a lot of things. But I do think there's yeah. like a Goldilocks okay. place where you need to be yeah. between high iron and low iron. Yeah. So, yeah, I talk about all this in great detail in my webinar book, but I'll, I'll give you the, the gist of it. Yeah. The, the idea that, you know, a ferritin should be like zero is just crazy. You know, if somebody has a really, really low ferritin, then that is a problem. Like we store iron because we need iron for survival. And if we don't have iron stores, that is a sign of a serious problem. Having said that, a high ferritin is also a problem. So of course we want to, you know, look at it in this range. And that range kind of depends on the age of the person and the etc. But as far as like the copper iron connection, so Copper is required for two main enzymes. And so copper and iron, you know, the chapter in my book is basically the yin and yang of copper and iron because they, you need both of them and they have this synergistic um, role that they play. And it, it's, it's really quite interesting and elegant. And so the two enzymes that you need for copper are largely are hephaestin and ceruloplasm. And so what hephaestin does is it allows you to absorb iron. So hephaestin requires copper. If you're low in copper, you're not going to have as much hephaestin, which means you're not going to be absorbing iron from your intestinal lumen, which means you're going to become iron deficient anemic. Okay. So that's where a lot of people say, and I, I don't believe this is true. But, okay, sometimes you'll hear people say all iron deficient anemia is a low copper. And that is, I think, a gross oversimplification of the reality on the ground. If it is true that if you have low copper, then you are going to be more likely to become iron deficient anemic because you're not going to be absorbing the iron from the lumen of the intestines with that hephaestin. Okay, that is true. 100% true. Having said that, there are a lot of people that have adequate level of copper. They are not copper deficient anemic and they are iron deficient anemic. Um, this is especially true for like, especially females, pregnant women, um, menstruating females, you know, somebody that has, you know, lost a fair amount of blood, um, which is females that are menstruating. You can lose a huge amount of blood when you're menstruating and those or people with um, various like intestinal issues, they will often become low in iron and copper or just low in iron or copper. So those are other issues. Um, the 
other enzyme that is really important for copper and copper is necessary for is ceruloplasm. And so ceruloplasm, it will bind to, with, with the copper, if you have plenty of copper, you'll have more ceruloplasm. And what ceruloplasm does is it allows iron to attach onto the transferrin. So when iron attaches onto the transferrin, then the iron will be able to be chaperoned and moved and transported throughout the body. Now, if if this, the body knows that iron can be very toxic and create a lot of oxidative stress, and that's why the body wants to, you know, control iron and basically where it is and is not going. And so that's why the iron in the blood should be bound to transferrin, okay? If you do not bind iron to transferrin, then that iron can go out and create oxidative stress and react willy-nilly throughout the body, creating a lot of harmful issues. So if you do not have enough copper, then you're not going to have enough ceruloplasm. Um, and if you do not have, there are some genetic diseases that can cause you to have low ceruloplasm as well, but let's exclude those for the time because you know we're just talking about the majority of people here where they, you know, if they have low ceruloplasm, they don't have enough copper. So if you don't have enough copper, you're going to not have enough ceruloplasm. Ceruloplasm is not going to be able to attach the iron onto the transferrin to transport it throughout the body. What that does is that causes that iron to be stuck where it is. Okay, so that that might mean it doesn't get absorbed from the intestines like it should. It also might mean like it can't transport like out of your brain or your liver or, you know, the rest of your tissues. And so that is why people that are low in copper can become both iron deficient anemic, low in iron, but also have iron loading. And that iron loading is where the iron gets stuck in the tissues because the ceruloplasm cannot transport it out by attaching it to the transferrin. And I haven't heard anybody else tell that story. So I think that is a big piece of the puzzle that people are missing when they say these, you know, oversimplified generalizations. Um, yeah, so there's a lot to unwrap in what I just said. Do you have any questions so far? No, it's it, it's very it is similar to Morley's uh, approach. He's he talks about the same type of enzymes. He talks he's big on ceruloplasm and and adding whole food vitamin C, which helps the tyrosinase uh, helps uh, build that ceruloplasm. But um, it's it, but he just seems to think that we accumulate all this iron from the iron fortification system. But it sounds like you might may not absorb that iron if you don't really have any copper anyways. Is that is that right? So um, if you don't have enough copper, then you can become iron deficient anemic and you're not going to be absorbing the iron that is in the food that's, you know, in your digestive system. OK, that is certainly a side effect. Around five I don't remember exactly what percent, but they're, you know, depending on what your diet's like, you know, a lot of people will become high in iron because they're eating processed foods that have high iron. But the reality is that 
I believe the majority of people that become high in iron, it's because they, they have one of those hemochromatosis genes um, and they're eating a fair amount of meat, especially red meat, because the iron that is in meat is heme iron, which is exponentially more absorbable than non-heme iron, which is non-heme iron is what is in the processed foods. That's what the fortification process, they're adding non-heme iron, which is not nearly as absorbable. That's the type of iron that you find in, in plants. That's like, you know, if you think of iron rich plants, well, there's a reason that vegans and vegetarians that eat a lot of iron rich plants don't become high in iron. It's because they are not eating heme iron, which you can only get in animals. So the people who are at the highest risk for becoming high in iron are people that are have the hereditary hemochromatosis gene, are eating a lot of red meat, and then there's a large percent of the population that has liver disease. Um, so there's a lot of factors that can increase your um, iron absorption that are liver related. And so if you if you drink a lot of alcohol, you're going to absorb more iron. Also, if you drink a lot of alcohol or just have some other chronic liver type issue, hepatitis, you know, take too much Tylenol, whatever, liver issues, then you're going to be making less hepcidin. And hepcidin is the chemical or it's a peptide hormone that the body makes, which basically um, controls iron absorption like that. The, the, the liver makes largely hepcidin is made in the liver. And that's why the liver is really kind of what controls how much iron is and is not absorbed. So people that have liver issues are not going to be making as much hepcidin and then they're going to be absorbing more iron because they don't make enough hepcidin. People that have the hemochromatosis gene, they're not going to be making as much hepcidin for a genetic reason and then they are going to be absorbing more iron which is then going to create more of a risk for their liver, which is going to further decrease their hepcidin production. And it becomes this vicious cycle where they're absorbing more and more iron because they're not making enough hepcidin. So hepcidin is really like what puts the brakes on iron absorption or not. And if you get too low in hepcidin, you're going to be absorbing too much iron, but you can also go too high. And that's, you can, if you get too high, like, so hepcidin is made by the, you know, the immune system uses hepcidin to basically control the amount of iron that's in the blood. So our body and immune system is really smart, and it knows that if we have a lot of iron in our blood, it's going to be feeding infections. And so it in times where we're sick, whether it's a virus, a parasite, a bacteria, the immune system increases hepcidin to get the iron out of the blood. And it, put, it takes it out of the blood and it puts it, it, it stores it in the intestinal lining. And then you poop and that, you know, that intestinal lining sheds and, you know, the iron goes in your, in your bowels. Um, it'll also store the iron in the liver. Um, it'll also store the iron in the macrophages. So like in the spleen. And, the reticular endothelial system. Um, so hepcidin is really is really kind of the key here. Um, there's other important keys here, but hepcidin is really the key. And if you get too high, 
then you're going to develop anemia of inflammation, which is where you, and that's, you know, one of the types of anemias that I talk about in the iron curse, um, which is basically where you have high ferritin, but low iron. And that's simply because the hepcidin is causing you to take all that iron and store it and get it out of the blood. That makes total sense. So how exactly do you diagnose, uh, you know, anemia or high iron? There's, I know Morley talks about a full Monty panel, he calls it. Are you running something similar to check multiple iron, iron markers? I have no idea what a full Monty panel is. I'll be honest with uh, you. Interesting. Um, I haven't, I haven't really looked that much at Morley Robbins work. And um, but I'll tell you what I do. I do always like a full iron panel, which is iron saturation, TIBC, UIBC, um, serum iron, and ferritin. And then I always look at that with a CBC and a CMP and um, there's other things that I add on there, but it, you know, at a minimum, you need the full iron panel, the CBC and the CMP. So the CBC will have like the red blood cells, the hemoglobin, the hematocrit, white blood cells, platelets, all that. The um, CMP is going to have like the liver enzymes, which you really need. If you're really looking at iron issues, you're going to see with a lot of people that have high iron um, that they're going to have liver issues. So you really need that information too. So um, that's always like the first step. Okay. And then I will, depending on those results, and sometimes with those, I will add like maybe a copper, ceruloplasm, RBC copper, that type of stuff. Being said that, um, the way that, you know, the technical way to diagnose iron problems, you have to have that full iron panel. And if you want to diagnose hereditary hemochromatosis, or even just hemochromatosis, you have to have um, the full iron panel. And then if you want to diagnose hereditary hemochromatosis, you need the gene on top of that. So like, it sounds like you might have one of those genes and you might even have, you know, like high iron issues and you might even be in an unhealthy range because a lot of the labs allow people to go into really unhealthy ranges. Um, so that would be interesting to see, but yeah. yeah, the way that, you know, the way the technical diagnosis of hemochromatosis is high iron saturation, 45 or higher and high ferritin. So then the question is how high of a ferritin is high because, you know, some labs will allow you to go men to go into, you know, the four hundreds before they're flagged as high. And there's even like this new movement of doctors that are saying like, well, you can go up to a thousand before it's a problem. And that's just really bad. And um, there's like no clinical evidence to support that. I don't know why they're saying that, but I keep hearing it. Um, so personally, um, and really a lot of the hemochromatosis associations would agree with this, that the iron saturation 45 or higher with a ferritin in males, ferritin 150 or above, and females, ferritin 120 or above. You know, that's a hemochromatosis situation. Okay. Now, if you add the gene to it, then you can find out if somebody has hereditary hemochromatosis or not. So 
You can have non-hereditary hemochromatosis, which is just where you have high iron and you don't have the gene, or you can have hereditary hemochromatosis where you have this gene that's going to decrease your ability to absorb, um, increase your ability to absorb iron, which is going to increase your ability, your risk of having high iron. And most people that have high iron have that gene, but there are a lot of people out there with non-hereditary hemochromatosis, which, you know, they largely have liver issues or they're just eating like way high amounts of heme iron and they're not losing blood. These are called men because um, they're not losing blood. You know, females are losing blood. Now, postmenopausal females or premenopausal females, they are also at a high risk for high iron. So, you know, I've seen hemochromatosis in a five-year-old hereditary hemochromatosis. You will not see hemochromatosis in a child unless they have that gene, but a lot of kids with those genes do develop high iron and they're not being caught. And it's really tragic because it's so bad for their brain and their whole body. Um, and then, you know, females start menstruating and losing massive amounts of blood through menstruation and pregnancy and childbirth. And then, you know, postmenopausal females, they catch up very quickly with men as far as the, you know, high iron situation, because they're not losing blood anymore. And that's really the fastest way to lower your iron, which is why donating blood or having blood removed, you know, therapeutically is how you lower iron. Yeah, that makes total sense. And before we go into the blood donations, we kind of talked a lot about high iron and a few of the problems it can cause. Can you tell everybody exactly like all the damages and symptoms and signs they can look for of when they have high iron? Yeah. Yeah. So there's just, there's so many. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to try to go through this, but I'm going to forget some because there's just so many. Yeah. It's a the, lot. The big, yeah. Yeah. It's really one of those things where it's like, this is kind of like the big thing that doesn't get diagnosed is like causing a lot of other things that are mm -hmm. misdiagnosed. Um, I see that a lot. So it'll, the, the most, the most at risk parts of the body for high iron are the liver. The liver is where iron is stored and recycled. Um, the pancreas. And so it'll cause damage to the pancreas, which is going to increase your risk for diabetes, insulin resistance. Um, It'll go to the heart, create cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, placking, um, clotting, heart rate changes, just general stress on your body. It'll go to the gonads, the ovaries and the testes and create um, infertility. Uh, it'll cause menstrual abnormalities. Um, It'll, you know, maybe stop your period, make them, you know, too long, too short. Um, it will create hormonal problems. It will cause low testosterone, especially in men. Um, damage the um, testes, again, creating infertility, increasing risk for hormonal problems. Um, infertility in females, too. Um, it will damage the pituitary gland. Uh, it, it damages the whole brain. The pituitary gland is one part of the brain that gets damaged. It specifically, it damages the anterior pituitary gland and not the posterior pituitary gland. So the anterior pituitary gland, you know, that is, you know, where all these hormones get made. So if you, if like in my husband, he developed a tumor that 
create an anterior pituitary gland that caused him to make too much ACTH, which causes him to have high cortisol. So other people, you know, maybe they will make less ACTH because so like adrenal fatigue because their anterior pituitary gland is damaged, um, or it'll decrease the ability to make LH or FSH, which is going to create issues with estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. Um, it'll decrease your ability to make TSH, which is going to create thyroid issues. Um, iron will also deposit in the thyroid directly, creating additional iron issues, autoimmune issues, not just of the thyroid, but the whole body. Um, also with the anterior pituitary gland, um, it will uh, damage your ability to make growth hormones. So you'll often see, especially in kids that have high iron, you know, if they develop, if you develop high iron at a younger age, then you'll be more likely to have stunted growth. Now, if you develop high iron when your growth plates are already closed, it's not going to stunt your growth. It will go to your joints and create, you know, damage in the joints, inflammation, gout. It'll increase uric acid. Um, it creates oxidative stress throughout your whole body. Um, including, you know, I didn't really fully cover the brain, but in the brain, uh, increased risk for any neurological disease that you're genetically predisposed to, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, Huntington's, you know, age-related macular degeneration, just pretty much any neuro bipolar, schizophrenia, um, depression, you name it, high iron is going to just put the accelerator on that disease and drive you, you know, closer to having that problem. Um, and uh, so that, you know, that's, that is just, oh, hair loss. Um, you'll get yellowing of the skin, increased risk for cancers, um, melanoma, uh, liver cancer, especially like 200 increase, times increased risk of liver cancer because, you know, all of that iron is storing in the liver and that's going to deplete antioxidants, which like glutathione, which you really need for your liver um, and your whole body to be healthy, really. So you're going to deplete antioxidants in your whole body and you're going to drive up free radicals because, you, you know, high iron creates free radicals. And then that's going to create an increased risk for DNA damage, which is DNA damage is how you get cancer. So um, increased risk for infections. If you people that have high iron at a higher risk for infections because iron feeds infections, you know, um, and it also will suppress their immune system. So um, like people who have high iron are more likely to have issues with COVID, long COVID, acute COVID death, um, not just COVID, but pretty much any other infection. Um, it'll create fatigue. It'll create um, just inflammation throughout your whole body, digestive issues. Um, I know there's a lot I'm missing, but, you know, you're getting the idea here. It's like you name a disease and I'll tell you how it tracks back to hemochromatosis. And this is such an easy disease to diagnose and treat. Even if you're not doing this whole whatever panel you called it, you know, even if you're just doing the um, what was it called again? Uh, he calls it the full Monty iron panel. Yeah. Even if you're not doing the full Monty, which I don't know what that is, if you're just doing the full iron panel that I told you about, the CBC, CMP, which these are standard. Like you can do all of those for like $60. Okay. This is not complicated science that you, you know, you can get them done anywhere. Um, that's, you can screen for and diagnose hemochromatosis just with those. I personally think everybody needs to know if they have these genes. 
because they create a huge risk and there's a lot of myths about who is at risk and not at risk. And I call that the carrier myth and we can talk about that later. But um, yeah, I mean, did I answer your question? Is it, was there something I was missing there? No, that was beautiful. Sounds like it's pretty much well played in every single system in th inside of the entire body. All right. Now that sounded beautiful. Sounds like um, pretty much iron's playing an important role in pretty much every system in the body and can cause major malfunction. And uh, if this is, I don't know if this is true or not, but even without the genetics, it sounds like they could at least run this full iron panel and see where they're at and then go from there. Right. Yeah. And that's where I think um, most people start really um, because at this point in time, most people, don't know if they have the hemochromatosis gene. A lot of people do and they don't know about it or they do have it and they don't really fully understand the significance of it and what it means and how to really protect themselves and monitor their health. Um, but like most people that I see, um, the labs are the first thing. Like I will see an iron panel that is concerning and I will say, we need to investigate this further and figure out, you know, if you have this gene, because if you have this gene, it's a whole nother ball game, you know, then having high iron without the gene. If you just have high iron without the gene, you know, that's usually pretty self-limiting. You know, you just lower the iron and it doesn't pop right back up very easily. Whereas if you have this gene, you know, your body is genetically programmed to absorb more iron for the rest of your life. And you really need to be managed closely, um, really by a trained medical doctor, um, because, you know, they have to be watching things very closely. Otherwise, you're going to end up with eventually likely getting high iron. Unfortunately, there's not enough trained medical doctors to be able to deal with this. And I know that for a fact because I'm a chiropractor, which means I can diagnose iron hemochromatosis, hereditary hemochromatosis, but I can't treat it. So I have to refer out to the hematologists or um, like even the general practitioners. And so I send people, you know, I'll refer them out. And a, a, a couple of different things happens. Probably most common is they'll ask their general practitioner and they'll say the general practitioner will tell them you're fine. Don't worry about it, which is just wrong. Even when things are blatantly out of range, um, that happens a disturbingly large amount of times. Um, the other thing that is quite common is like, I'll refer somebody to a hematologist and they won't go for one reason or another. Maybe they can't get in very easily just because it's not particularly easy to get into a hematologist or whatever. Um, or I've even had um, a patient who I referred to a hematologist. They went to the hematologist. It wasn't the one I sent them to. It was in another state. And the hematologist was like, why are you here? You're fine. Um, and they, they were fine at that point in time, other than they still had high liver enzymes from the high iron but they had donated blood to fix it and they brought all their old labs to show the problem, which was very obvious. Like it was very obvious they had high iron, but the hematologist was just like, why, why are you here? Why did you even, why did you order all these labs? Um, and they were like, well, um, I mean, I was just trying to be healthy and the doctor caught that I had high iron and it was causing me to have liver issues. And so I donated blood and took some supplements and got my iron levels down. And um, my liver is still a little bit high, but, you know, it's coming down with lowering the iron. And she was just like, 
why are you here? The hematologist, why are you here? Um, so that was interesting. That was an interesting kind of case study. But um, yeah, I kind of digressed on that one. I don't even know where we started with that yeah, question. It's totally fine. <laughs> it happens, happens all the time. So, um, okay, it's easy to diagnose this high iron if you get the full panel with the right practitioner. So it sounds like everybody can reach out to you or try to figure out somebody that's similar to you to do that. And then we've talked about blood donations, which people usually recommend like quarterly, or if you're still menstruating, I think sometimes they recommend females, maybe like a couple times a year, obviously probably depends on how high your iron is. But then what are your thoughts on like iron chelators? Like Dr. Joel Rosen also recommended lactoferrin, like colostrum to me. What are your thoughts on any, any of the supplemental stuff? There's a lot of supplements that I do like and include in the Iron Curse protocols. Lactoferrin is not one of them, um, just because it, you know, can bind to some other minerals and make you low in other minerals because um, it is more like chelating. There are some chelating um, supplements that I do include in the Iron Curse protocols, and those include um, curcumin. So the extract from turmeric is curcumin. Um, and so curcumin's like a really wonderful, it'll lower iron really pretty effectively. But it's also a really wonderful antioxidant that actually will, you know, remove iron from the brain and the spleen and the liver and the heart and the bones. Um, so that's a really wonderful one um, that has some additional healthcare health properties that like lactoferrin doesn't have with, with me lactoferrin it's like it just doesn't have everything that i'm looking for it'll lower iron but it doesn't give you like all the other things that i really like like the additional protective things it's not just lowering like the curcumin is lowering the iron and then it's also a really powerful antioxidant so another one that because i have i have a couple different categories of supplements in that protocol the, those iron curse protocols. One is iron chelators. Um, the other one is things that decrease iron absorption by increasing hepcidin. And another one is just full on like antioxidants to repair the damage and prevent damage. So um, the other iron chelators in that protocol are like silymarin, which is extract from milk thistle. And silymarin not only binds to and lowers iron, but it's also a really wonderful thing for people, especially with high iron, because it is going to help heal up the liver and protect the liver, which, you know, the liver is a really significant concern when you're dealing with high ferritin, um, which is, occurs with high iron. So the silymarin is going to help, you know, heal up and protect the liver while lowering iron, um, which like you wouldn't see with the lactoferrin. Um, another really wonderful, um, iron binder in the protocols is alpha lipoic acid because alpha lipoic acid will not only bind to and lower iron but it will also um lower blood sugar so um a lot of people with high iron develop diabetes and diabetes actually kind of creates a vicious cycle where you're more likely to have high iron also because it affects um hepcidin production by the liver as well so the alpha-lipoic acid will lower iron, but also is a wonderful antioxidant that is, you know, also lowers blood sugar and really helps to protect 
the cellular membrane. And, and so all of the things that I just discussed and more help to protect the cellular membrane from what's called ferroptosis, which is like an iron-induced cell death. So when you have high iron and low antioxidants, that creates a lot of damage on the cellular membrane of the cell. And then the cells like kill themselves to sacrifice themselves because they're just not healthy enough to go on. And that's called ferroptosis. And it's a large driving factor that, you know, creates a lot of this iron induced damage and destruction in the body. So the, the iron curse protocols, you know, I include chelating agents, um, but also, but they're naturally occurring and they all have additional added bonuses that really feed well into hemochromatosis. And then things that, increase hepcidin and lower iron absorption. So I think it's really important to not just, you know, use those chelators. And if you are using the chelators, you know, you have to really make sure you're getting plenty of copper, magnesium, trace minerals, manganese, all that good stuff. And then the, the iron modulators increase hepcidin. Those, a, a couple of those that, you know, I have a pretty good list in there, but Quercetin's a really good one. So quercetin, you know, from red onions, it naturally occurring. That's a wonderful antioxidant that has been shown to be great for, you know, lowering histamine, decreasing cardiovascular disease. It kind of got a lot of um, lip service. It got a lot of notoriety with COVID uh, just because, you know, so many people were using it with COVID because it helps to um, do a lot of different things, including get zinc into the cells. So, but quercetin, when, in some studies, they've compared it to, you know, prescription chelating agents, and the quercetin actually lowered the iron and the iron saturation better with the benefit of preventing, like, um, it also prevented ferroptosis and iron destruction, which the prescription um, chelators don't do that. So they just lower iron, like all the chelators I just talked about actually prevent ferroptosis because they're antioxidants. Um, everything, you know, it's really, there's so many wonderful naturally occurring things that can influence iron while still protecting and healing up the damage. And that's a huge part of the iron curse. That's amazing. Cause I yeah. think that, that, I think that's like a really important piece that I've kind of uncovered and, um, not only, you know, people that are taking those supplements, they can lower their iron faster, um, but they can also keep it in a healthy range easier so that they don't have to like completely avoid eating red meat and shellfish, which are high in iron. They can, you know, maybe take some of those supplements to make it so that they don't absorb iron as much or they're lowering it. Like every morning, my daughter gets a little bit of quercetin, you know, and a little shot glass that I put a bunch of stuff in. And it's because I know that, you know, this child is making not enough hepcidin, so I'm going to give her quercetin to make more. I also know that this child um, has got issues with ADD, and if I give her that quercetin, that's going to help her to slow her COMT enzyme, and then she's going to be able to focus better. So, uh, but that's a whole other story. I'm just saying that, like, if you really learn about these different nutrients, like, you can really do some very elegant, savvy, beautiful things with them, and not only get wonderful benefits, but um, decrease side effects. So in the book, I, in the webinar, I really try to go through and say pros and cons. Like, these are the good things about this nutrient. These are the things you need to know that could be red flags. For example, EGCG, which is naturally occurring, uh, you know, the green tea extract. Okay. So this, um, 
EGCG, that is an iron key lighter. And um, having said that, it also drives T2 immunity, which can increase autoimmune diseases in certain people, myself included. So, you know, I go through all the research as far as like, here's why EGCG helps with hemochromatosis. There's wonderful research. It's very real. Having said that, you need to know maybe there's a segment of the population that this is not the best option for them. And so you need to know the pros and cons. And that's where I think a lot of people, they just learn the pros and don't really learn the cons. And then you see more, you know, avoidable issues. Having said that, you know, one of the best ways to lower iron is just drinking like coffee or green tea with a meal because it just, it decreases iron absorption. And, um, you know, that's a pretty easy thing for a lot of people to do if they just, you know, know. Yeah, no, I've, I've, uh, gotten into drinking some, some coffee with my red meat and stuff. It makes, makes total sense. And for these supplements though, um, are people just going to go out and buy some powders online? Like what about dosages? Is there a supplement brand that you work with that already has it in correct dosages? How does that work? Yeah. So, um, you know, in the, book and in the webinar, I give kind of suggested doses. Having said that, you know, everybody is different. And I, I, I kind of have a hard time giving people protocols because when you're really trying to work with an individual and create like a personalized house plan, the idea of a protocol is kind of like oversimplification in my mind. What what I'm really doing is I'm trying to give people like as much information as they can get to understand the value, the pros, the cons, and then suggested doses. You know, having said that, like, I can't say definitely do this. I'm just saying consider this for an adult. Um, for example, like three grams of curcumin is a really common dosage that I use in my practice and I see really good results with that, with, you know, various issues. But also there's a number of people that maybe I give them curcumin for just joint pain and that can make them low in iron, okay? Or low in copper. And so the idea that I can just give somebody a protocol, I think, um, is too simplified, but I still try to give people the information so that they can, you know, make easy decisions. Okay. Now, as far as the supplements, you know, um, I, of course, I have my personal brand, Epigenozyme Nutrition, which um, is what I use in my practice, but there are a lot of really good other options out there on the market. Um, and that's where like, I don't, I don't specifically call out like epigenozyme nutrition and the iron curse in my book. I simply say, here's the research on this nutrient and, you know, and then I'll say the form. And I do think, you know, I'm not a big fan of like, just go to, you know, CVS or whatever and get whatever is on sale. There's a reason that some of these products are more expensive than others and, in many cases, I hate to say it, but you do, you get what you pay for. And so like in my practice, I'm all about, you know, the best possible results with the least possible, the fewest side effects. Cause I want 
to succeed and in order for me to succeed, I need my patients to succeed. And so I'm always trying to get what is the most likely to work as the fastest with the fewest side effects. And that's where, you know, I try to just have really good quality nutrition. Um, and oftentimes people will come in and they have, you know, just really, they're, they're really trying. They just, they, there's some really bad stuff out there. <laughs> so it does matter what you're getting. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to get epigenetic nutrition. There's a lot of other good brands out there. I'm just saying like, um, do your research. There's a reason yeah. things are, you know, hugely discounted. As with any supplement, it's not just curcumin or whatever. I mean, there's so many bad supplements on the market. It's insane. So I try to do my due diligence and only get people on that talk about real high quality supplements for sure. Um, and one last question I kind of have. So as people are trying to lower their iron, um, how often are you like running a new panel? Because I would imagine if they just keep uh, blindly donating and taking the chelators that potentially you could lower iron too far. So are you doing updated labs like periodically? Yeah, you can easily get somebody too low. Um, I mean, I've seen people go from too high to too low just with supplements. Hmm. Um, and I, of course, that can also happen with blood donations. So, you know, if if you go to a hematologist who's, you know, trained to treat this, they will not remove blood without doing a full iron panel and CBC on you. Um, and I personally don't think anybody should ever donate blood without getting a full iron panel and CBC. And the only way to really know, you know, where you are and how much you really need as far as uh, how, how often you need to donate blood or where you are is to check those levels. So, um, and, and there's some people that if they have too much blood removed, they're going to become low in red blood cells, low in hemoglobin. So they're going to become anemic and that's an iron loading anemia. If they have high iron in their tissues and their blood, you know, but they're, they're anemic. They can't donate blood at that point in time. So that's the beauty of, you know, doing the labs to figure out where you are, but also to have these other nutrients that allow you to lower iron without necessarily um, like only donating blood because some people are not a good candidate for donating blood. You know, you can have high iron and have low red blood cells, low hemoglobin, and then you cannot donate blood. You have to do chelators. Um, and then, you know, some people, the hematologist will have blood removed like really frequently, like once a week, especially in the beginning when they first start, you know, trying to get that ferritin down. Because you have to understand a lot of people that have high iron, like that get diagnosed, they have exceedingly high iron, like ferritin in the 3000s. And Part of the reason for that is because doctors are so bad at diagnosing this that the people that are most likely to get diagnosed have had it for so long and it gets so serious. Okay, so the worst cases are the ones that are getting diagnosed often, which is something I'm trying to change. I want I want to prevent people from going high by, you know, catching them in a very early stage before the damage is done. And the best way to do that is to screen people with genes and blood work. So, you know, you have to have the labs um, and these people that have really, really high iron, the often the hematologist will like remove blood once a week until they can't anymore. 
but not because the iron's low, but because now they have low hemoglobin and red blood cells because they're just lost a bunch of blood quickly. Yeah, that makes total sense. So how, how often are you redoing that lab work? Like quarterly, a couple times a year? It depends. It depends. I mean, um, it might be a couple, it might be like four times, five, six times a year. It might be twice, you know, until somebody is really managed in a healthy range, you don't know what they're going to need. And then that can even change if they change their environment. Like if they stop eating red meat, then they might not need to remove blood as often, you know? Um, but you know, like my husband, he has hereditary hemochromatosis. He's goes to a hematologist. He has a very low risk. He only has one HFE H63 gene, which many doctors say that's not even a risk at all. But yet a lot of people have hereditary hemochromatosis with that gene. He sees the hematologist, I think at this point in time, twice a year. Um, and, you know, he pretty much has to donate blood about twice a year. And then, of course, I have him on, you know, supplements and stuff. And sometimes he's better about taking them than other times. <laughs> husbands are husbands are not the same as patients. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I get I get the same uh, response from my wife. Like if I put her on something, she she doesn't always take it. But then if um, I say get her HTMA through someone else, then she takes like everything. I'm like, okay, so you'll take everything that this person told you, but you won't take anything that I recommend for you. It's super funny how that works. It is funny. The problem is I don't have anybody else to send them to for all this stuff. But if, you <laughs> right. know, with like the iron stuff, I'm like, there's nobody else that's going to. So it's just, um, you know, I do the best I can. Absolutely. Well, uh, why don't you tell everybody, we kind of mentioned the books and the upcoming book, but tell everybody where they can find you, find the webinars, find the supplement and how they can work with you. Okay. So, um, well, you can find me on social media, uh, Facebook, Christy Sutton, TikTok and Instagram, Dr. Christy Sutton. Um, I have my website, which is Dr. Christy Sutton or Labrogenomics. It's the same website, different domain name. And um, basically, you know, that's where you can find the webinars or any of the other things I've talked about as far as the educational stuff. But the My upcoming book, The Iron Curse, should be out in the next couple of months. And um, I'll be promoting that through uh, my 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 social media stuff um, for the next couple months and in, in the next couple months. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I thought it was a blast. And I, I love this kind of copper iron, you know, um, iron overload type of idea that's kind of getting in the stratosphere. seems like there's a, a lot more people talking about it now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they need to, it's really important. So thanks for having me talking about this important topic. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. If you enjoy this show, would you please take a second to subscribe, rate, and review it for me? Also, if you'd like to know more information about Combo, personalized one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, or for upcoming retreat information, which I host with my wife, please visit my website in the show notes or DM me on Instagram. My handle over there is at Integrative Matt. Until next time, my friends.